Heavenly Father, your word, we are told, is a sharp double-edged sword. It is living and active, taken by your spirit and applied to our hearts and minds. And we pray that indeed this morning your spirit would do that uh, to our eternal benefit and to your glory. Uh, May your word shape us as your people and give us light to our path as to how we should live each day uh, under your Heavenly Father's gaze. As our loving Heavenly Father, we pray. Amen. Uh, the least favoured chore in our household. Uh, there's a number one slot for least favoured chore. Uh, what is it in yours? Well, in ours, it is the cleaning of the toilet. Uh, now, in close second uh, is the cleaning of the fruit and reg drawer in the base of the fridge. Uh, with the best of consuming intentions, uh, fruit is placed in the drawer. However, Uh, Like the layering of geological strata, over time, items are placed on top and the fruit is forgotten. Uh, That is until some poor, hapless individual, usually me, comes to clean it out. I know, it's woeful. Uh, And as my fingers sink into the slimy mass, I ask myself, is there anything more unpleasant than rotting putrid, mouldy fruit. And those of the job of cleaning the toilets may want to respond to that. Well, Isaiah chapter 5 is all about rotten, putrid, bad fruits. Look at verse 2. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. As we're going to see, rotten fruit is what Isaiah chapter 5 is all about. And it's a picture of sin. Uh, to, to God, sin is like rotten, putrid, slimy fruit. Uh, to us, sin may seem like uh, juicy fruit, which tempts us. Uh, the term, of course, forbidden fruit, carries this connotation of it being naughtily attractive and appealing and enticing. But this chapter shows us how God views sin, and it disgusts him, and it turns his stomach. So as we reflect together on Isaiah chapter 5 this morning, it's going to help us see sin more as God sees it. Uh, But if that all seems too depressing, uh, then despair not. For not only will we see the problem, but also the solution. Uh, We will see what Scripture reveals about how we become the people that God wants us to be. People bearing good fruit. So... Uh, Firstly, we're going to see, therefore, uh, God's disgust at bad fruits, but then God's delight at good fruits. So, firstly then, God's disgust at bad fruits. The chapter begins with a love song, uh, and that is from verses 1 to 7. Isaiah the prophet sings this love song for his beloved. It's a song about the Lord's vineyard. Look at verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Now, presumably, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, did actually sing it. Uh, Maybe he strummed away on his guitar. And it's a song about how the Lord planted a new vineyard and did everything possible to give it a good start. Verse 2, it says, he dug it up, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with the choicest vines, and he built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. 
uh, but not all turned out well. It was a massive disappointment. Verse 2 continues. Uh, Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Bad, rotten, moldy, putrid fruit. Now, the fault was not on the Lord's side. Any reasonable person could see that he couldn't have done anything more than he did. He lavished on it the greatest care and attention. Look at verse 3. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, uh, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And so there's nothing for it. Uh, The Lord abandons it. Uh, He lets it go to ruin. The Lord would remove his protection and his care and leave it to the elements. Verse 5. Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Well, uh, by this stage in Isaiah's love song, his listeners uh, would have been in full agreement. Yeah, hear, hear. What a reasonable response. What more could the owner have done? But then in verse 7, Isaiah puts his cards on the table. And he turns to his listeners and says, this useless vineyard, it's actually you. It's a picture of you lot. Verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. What more could God have done for his covenant people? Uh, He'd rescued them from Egypt. He'd given them the law on Mount Sinai. He'd provided for them in the wilderness. He'd brought them to the promised land. He'd defeated their enemies, and he'd given them kings to rule over them. They had had everything on a plate. And he had treated them like no other people on the planet. And yet, how did they respond? Tragically, in sin and rebellion. And instead of the good fruit of righteous, godly, obedient lives, pleasing to God, his people were unrighteous, ungodly, and corrupt. Uh, Their lives were like rotten fruit. Uh, They were a bitter disappointment to God. What more could he have done? Do you think that God feels any different when he looks at the world today? Uh, Does he feel the same bitter disappointment and revulsion at sin? How about when he looks at the church? How does God feel with what he sees going on in his church? How about when he looks at you and me? Do you think that we may be a bitter disappointment to him? Well, that depends, and we'll come on to that shortly. Uh, The rest of the chapter is actually a catalogue of the bad fruit in Israel. 
in the society of Isaiah's day. And each bit of rotten fruit is introduced by the word woe. Uh, there are actually six woes, and it actually like, acts as a checklist of some of the things going on in Isaiah's day which filled God with disgust. Let's look at some of them in turn. Here are some of the rotten fruits. Uh, firstly, greed, at uh, verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. You see, these materialistic, greedy people, they were buying up the properties and displacing the people from the land so they could live in large and beautiful, spacious houses on spacious estates. Uh, these people were living in luxury, enjoying the prosperity of the golden age of King Uzziah's reign. Uh, people say greed is good, but God begs to differ. God finds such greed as rotten, putrid, disgusting fruit. Uh, the second piece of bad fruit uh, we see in verse 11, uh, debauchery. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Uh, many in Israel were party animals. They were living for pleasure. Uh, they were staggering from one party to the next. Uh, booze, drinks, maybe drugs and clubs. Nightlife with no concern for God. Look at verse 12. Uh, they have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wines, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. The people were saying, hey, uh, this is the good life. They were living it up. Uh, they were living for the weekend. But God said, to me, it's like disgusting, rotten fruit. Uh, the third piece of bad fruit was defiance, verse 18. Uh, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Uh, these were people who were so attached to their sin, it was like a caravan on the tow bar of their car, always following them. And not only that, but they brazenly mocked God and dared him to take action. Verse 19. Let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. And such defiance turns God's stomach like a furry, rotten strawberry. Fourthly, uh, moral distortion. Verse 20. Uh, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Uh, people were trying to justify their behavior. Uh, they were redefining what was right and wrong. They had topsy-turvy values. Uh, things God condemned, they said, hey, that's good, that's natural. And things that were good, they dismissed as, as boring and oppressive. Doesn't that sound all too familiar? And God hates that like a rotting apple with worms crawling all over it. Uh, fifthly, smugness, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Uh, they were coming up with their own rules and values, and they thought they were so enlightened. They thought they were so sophisticated in their sin. They thought that humanity had come of age, but to God, 
he was disgusted by such smugness. It was like a furry peach with mold all over it. At number six, self-interest. Look at verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes of, at drinking wine and champions at mi mixing drinks, who acquire the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. You see what they were doing? Their lives were just self-focused and self-interested. They were living lives of leisure and pleasure. And on top of that, they were being corrupt. They were taking bribes. They were denying people their rights and justice. And God hates such rotten fruit. Does any of that sound familiar? Uh, this was a snapshot of society in Judah in the 8th century BC. Fast forward eight centuries. What do we see? Uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of pagan society in his day in 1st century AD. It's in Romans chapter 1, and of course it's very similar. Fast forward a further two millennia. And of course this could just as well be a description of 21st century Australian society. Uh, the former BBC political editor Andrew Marr uh, makes a telling co comment in his book A History of the World, and he says this. Uh, we have made advances as humanity, yet when it comes to our appetites, our anger, our relationships with power, there has been nothing like the advance we have seen in our science and technical culture. We are no different. We have not really advanced when it comes to this rotten fruit. This rotten fruit of sin uh, continues to fill the world, and God hates it, and it's disgusting to him. The rotten fruit of sin was a problem for God's old covenant people. Uh, these people were no different to the world around them. And when Jesus came, he found the same rottenness festering beneath the facade of religion in Israel of his day. Uh, Matthew chapter 23 intentionally resonates with Isaiah chapter 5. In Matthew 23, Jesus utters six woes to the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, but in reality they were full of wickedness. He was copying the six woes of Isaiah chapter 5. And what does God see when he looks at our lives? At what sort of fruit is evident? Is it rotten fruit? At do we see sin as God sees sin? Is it so different to the, how the world sees sin? Why does it matter? Because woe leads to therefore. In Isaiah, we see woe leading to therefore. In this chapter, there are six woes, and there are four therefores. You see, God's disgust at sin leads to his judgment on sin. Verse 13. Therefore, my people will go into exile. Verse 14. Therefore, the grain grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Death is pictured here 
as a hungry monster, gobbling up the people. Verse 24. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, the fire of judgment would come. Verse 25. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. It's a terrifying picture of God's unrelenting judgment. Verse 26. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. In his sovereign power, the Lord would indeed summon the Assyrians to invade his people. He would just need to whistle and this pagan nation would come and do his bidding. Like a dog obeying his master and his whistle. And so Judah would be destroyed. And of course, it was. This divine connection between woe that is sin and therefore that is judgment is something that people need to take seriously. Uh, The world hasn't changed, and God hasn't changed. God hates sin, and therefore he will judge sin. Unpopular though it may be, uh, people need to hear about sin and the consequences of sin. Uh, Shelves in Christian bookstores are overflowing with books about how to fill a G-shaped hole in our life or how to get more inner peace, or how to fulfill our potential, or how to make our world a nicer place, or how to have our best life now. But there isn't much shelf space allocated to the topic of sin and its consequences. Verse 24 speaks of God as the Holy One of Israel. It's actually one of Isaiah's favorite descriptions of God the Holy One of Israel. He actually uses it 25 times. And it only comes up seven times in the rest of the Old Testament. The Holy One of Israel. Isaiah is the prophet of holiness. And God is holy. And next week in Isaiah chapter 6, we will see Isaiah coming face to face with the Holy God in the temple and it's an uncomfortable experience to put it mildly because God is holy he hates sin he's disgusted by it as we are by rotten fruit in the fridge drawer and because God is just God will judge it verse 16 says this but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. So, uh, what hope is there? Uh, Chapters 1 to 5 of Isaiah are Isaiah's introduction to his whole book. And they end in doom and gloom. And they end in gathering darkness. Verse 30. He will see darkness and distress... Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. You see, God's old covenant people had failed miserably. What more could God have done? But they bore just rotten, 
putrid fruit. And consequently, God's judgment comes on them, and it's left pretty bleak. Uh, We may feel the same, that if these people couldn't get it right, what hope is there for any of us? How can we get off this conveyor belt of sin and therefore judgment? But when we look ahead to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6, we read this. In days to come, Jacob will take root, uh, Israel will bud and blossom, and will fill all the world with fruit. What a turnaround. Filling the whole world with good fruit. How was that going to happen? How do you get people from being sinners bearing rotten fruit, heading for judgment, to those being in whom God delights, bearing good fruit? Well, as we saw last week, uh, education cannot do it. Uh, Science cannot do it. Stricter legislation cannot do it. Uh, Moralism cannot do it. I uh, help out the Anglican minister taking the uh, monthly service at the Lakes of Cherubic Retirement Village. And I've been uh, shadowing uh, the series in Romans, which we did, uh, with them, uh, which we also do at Woodlands. When we came to the uh, sermon on Romans chapter 7, if you recall, it's that one where Apostle, Apostle Paul sort of talks about the wretchedness of sin and him being the wretched man. And he uses the sin of covetousness, particularly to highlight the fact that all of us are, in our own strength, prone to sin. We're under the power of sin. Uh, afterwards, uh, I spoke to one gentleman, and uh, clearly the message has struck home to him. Uh, the point of Paul choosing the, the sin of covetousness, of course, is because it's not just an external act of the law, uh, but our perfect righteousness needs to be the inner heart as well. And covetousness is the one which really rules us all out. And this had really struck home with this particular gentleman. I think he'd seen it for the first time. He'd been a churchgoer all his life, but he, I could see in talking to him there's a real conviction that, yes, he realized he was uh, sinful. So I said, oh, we can talk more. Uh, at the next monthly service. And so I went along and I went through that two-way to live booklet and I showed him some verses of Scripture. In particular, I showed him uh, Titus 3, verse 5, and it says this, of course. He, uh, that is God, saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so I said to him, Where does that leave you? Uh, What do you think God is calling you to do? And we'd gone through two ways to live. We talked about how Jesus, as we saw in the kids' talk, is the one who takes our punishment for our sin. And I said, what do you think? Where does that leave you? And do you know his words? He says, well, I guess that means I need to lift my game. Really? It was staggering. He'd had some conviction of sin, but he still thought the solution was he just needed to lift his game. He thought, after all we'd looked at, and even this clear teaching of Scripture, at the end of the day, he thought he could do it through his moralism. It was tragic how blind people are. Something radical needs to happen. Such fruitfulness could only spring 
from an inner transformation. It is not something we can do in our own strength. If we are going to bear the good fruit of righteousness, it needs to come from within. It needs a renewed heart, something that gentleman at that stage couldn't see. And indeed, this need for a renewed heart is what the prophets predicted, and it's what Jesus confirmed. Look at John 3, verse 3, those amazing words of Jesus to the startled religious leader Nicodemus. I'll tell you the truth, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How would Jesus bring about this inner rebirth? Well, firstly, uh, he would bring us forgiveness for the sins of our hearts. On the cross, as we saw in the kids' talk, and we know this, don't we? Uh, Jesus takes on himself all the sins of his people. Uh, the rubbish truck is backed up and tipped onto him. And it tips all the smelly, mutton, r- rotten, moldy, putrid fruit onto him. Our putrid fruit is put on him. He was degraded with all that rotten fruit of my life and yours if we trust in him. Jesus was judged for it instead of us. Jesus suffers the judgments that we read about in Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is the one who goes into exile. Jesus is the one for whom the grave opens to swallow him. Jesus is the one for whom the anger of God is kindled against. Jesus is the one for whom God's hand is lifted up against him. Jesus is the one for whom God summons his enemies against him. And Jesus is the one who hangs on the cross in the darkness of God's judgment as it covers the land. Our woes and therefores became his woes and therefores. And so you see, wonderfully, if we trust in him, we are declared righteous in God's sight. And rather us being a disappointment to God, he delights in us because of the forgiveness that Jesus has brought. But God's purpose is not just that we would be forgiven, but that we would also be fruitful. Uh, In the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, which uh, Andrew read to us, uh, Jesus commandeers this vineyard parable of Isaiah, and he uses it to pronounce God's judgment on his fruitless old covenant people in his day. And he uses these following words. We saw it in Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So whom was the kingdom of God taken away from? Well, from barren Old Testament Israel. And to whom was it given? To God's new covenant people, the church, Christians, Jews and Gentiles united together by their faith in the Messiah. And it is this new covenant people who will then produce the good fruit of changed holy lives that God desires. Ephesians 1 verse 4 puts it this way. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
The righteous fruit production is the wonderful work of the gospel in the world. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 6. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. But as we close, how practically does this righteous fruit bearing come about? Well, Scripture reveals that it's the work of God's Spirit, God's Word, and our prayers. God's Spirit, God's Word, and our prayers. So firstly, uh, the Spirit. Uh, Romans chapter 7, uh, we saw this in our series, uh, says Christians are those who bear fruit for God through the new life of the Spirit. Uh, Look at Romans 7 again. Uh, My brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And verse 6 continues, so that, we, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. That by faith we are united with Christ through the indwelling Spirit. And if we live according to the Spirit, then we grow the beautiful fruit of righteousness in us. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. And it's self-control. That is the beautiful fruit in our lives, which is the work of the Spirit, which delights God's heart. Remember John chapter 15. How does Jesus describe himself there? He says he is the vine. And those who trust in him are the branches. And if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. And that is how we bear good fruit. We have a new life source. And not only does fruitfulness come about by the Spirit, but also in obedient response to God's Word. Remember Jesus' parable of the soils. Uh, There, fruitfulness is the mark of hearing and living out the Word of the Gospel. Mark 4, verse 20. Others like seed sown on good soil hear the Word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even a hundred times what was sown. It's also noteworthy that fruitfulness was what Paul prayed for the Christians at Philippi. Look at Philippians 1, verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Jesus changes our hearts. He does that by His Spirit. And He does that by His Word. And in so doing, we are changed from being bad trees to good trees. And a changed heart will flow out in a changed life. Matthew 12, verse 33. Jesus says, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. 
or make a, tr a, bad, a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So in conclusion, uh, for those who are trusting in Jesus, uh, the question is this. How strong is our desire to live fruitful lives for God? Uh, do we yearn for the fruit of righteousness in our lives enough to pray for it regularly? Uh, when we read God's Word, are we earnestly asking, what does obedience to this passage look like for me so that I can bear more fruit in my life? Uh, is God's Word continuing to dwell richly in me? And when we hold our lives up against the, the fruit of the Spirit template, how do we compare? Are we growing year on year in the fruit of the Spirit? And at our funeral, uh, would others speak of our lives as typified by acts of love and care and service of others? Uh, scripture calls us to increasingly delight our Heavenly Father's heart by living lives rich with the good fruit of righteousness. And may we do that and encourage each other to do that to God's glory and his delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for that beautiful picture of beautiful fruit uh, which delights your heart in contrast to the putrid fruit of unrighteous lives. Thank you through Jesus, you have made us into good trees. And you do that ongoing good work of producing the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Uh, may we fully cooperate with you in that, in that wonderful venture. May we increasingly pray earnestly for and sit under the, your word and allow your spirit to do its wonderful work, his wonderful work in our lives, we pray. Amen.